Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Mellish, Director of Events and Online Content at the Human Capital Institute, and this is 9 to Thrive HR, your source for education, expertise, and knowledge on all things talent. This episode of 9 to Thrive is brought to you by the good people at Vizier. Learn more about them and all they have to offer at vizier.com. And today, my guest is Caitlin Bixby, Director of Product Marketing at Vizier. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. I am a huge podcast fan, so this is a dream. <laughs> this is a thrill. Is it? Is it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't go on for four hours like Joe Rogan, but we'll shoot for better than five minutes. So um, before we get deep into the weeds here, I want to give Caitlin a chance to tell us a little bit about her background and how she's worked with HR professionals in the past. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I like to sort of do give some background to myself because people hear director of product marketing and they think, you know, lifelong marketer. But in fact, I'm not. I, I was fortunate enough to start at a little company called PeopleSoft when I uh, had graduated university. And I spent uh, a lot of time there, both in product, but later on doing consulting. So I spent about 15 years doing implementation consulting on PeopleSoft. And I moved to another company to do uh, talent management implementation. So I've actually been working directly with HCM professionals as as they try to update their technology, update their processes, you know, think through what is normal for a really long time uh, before I, I made the, the switch into product marketing. So, you know, I really, I, you know, understand the industry, understand the pain, and I, you know, and the, the frustration uh, of people, and and just how um, hard, it is, especially for HR people in general, to really optimize and make the most of the technology that's being made available to them. You're spot on with that pain point, I think, um, in technology and just in every other facet of our working lives. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of organizations, um, whether government or whether private sector, are looking at their budgets being cut as their organization tries to adjust and adapt and maybe just plain survive. Um, so how should HR in particular be thinking about doing more with less at this point? I think this is a really good chance to not just think about being more efficient. I think the focus the last 20 years or so, um, particularly with the, the massive changes in HCMs has been, let's make our HCM more efficient. Let's centralize on one platform. Let's automate processes. First of all, I think we've done um, quite a bit there. There's a limit to how much more can possibly be made more efficient. Uh, but also there's a real cap to how uh, the value that can be realized from that. And, and I think it's time to sort of take a deep breath, take a step back and look at really what can add a value to the organization, what really matters. Um, you know, does it really matter if people can request their time off a little bit quicker? Um, does it really matter if we switch our forms for performance plans? Um, you know, maybe in different times, sure. But right now, really what we want to do is free up people to do the best work they can possibly do to get the right people in the right places to, to keep our top talent. Um, you know, that's a mistake sometimes people make when, when the economy is down is thinking you won't have to worry about your talent. You don't have to worry about your bad talent leaving, but you sure have to learn about your good talent being lured away because uh, when you're trying to do more with less, you want to do more with good people. Uh, so I think it's really, you know, stop thinking about being efficient and start think about adding value back into the organization by making it possible for people to perform at their best and to identify the areas where it's really going to make a big difference, where a little change can make a big difference. 
Yeah, there's some really good points in there, especially like the mention that in bad economic times, uh, you still have to worry about your top talent being lured away because, you know, no matter how bad things get, in some sense, your top talent is always in demand and organizations are always on the lookout to lure somebody away that could really be a difference maker at their organization. Yeah, exactly. And and if you've paired yourself right back to just your like bare essentials, you're going to feel that so much if, if somebody leaves. Right. It makes a big, a much bigger difference if the team used to be 25 people, but now it's 10. And every person you lose from that team is a, is a much bigger hit to your ability to function and, and succeed as a, as a team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excellent. So um, with all that in mind, um, obviously the, the elephant in the room we haven't quite mentioned yet is the pandemic, but you know, the pandemic has caused a lot of the strife and trouble that we're, that we're talking about. Um, but also, I guess the, the second elephant in the room is the renewed focus on diversity and inclusion at work with a lot of the political controversies and violence and, and protests and everything. So we're, we're stuck with these huge um, things here where HR teams were already challenged with managing COVID response, figuring out when it was safe to come back to work, who can come back to work, downsizing um, working from home challenges, making all just, you know, that's enough for somebody to, to spend a lifetime working on. And then now there's renewed focus on DNI and a lot more demand from both the people that work at your organization, but also everybody that is watching from outside. It's a really important time. How do we make room for both of these things? It is a challenge and it is a balance, but I think, um, we see a couple of things. First of all, um, Aside from the obvious reason of embracing a diversity and inclusion at your workplace because it is the right thing to do, uh, it's also good for your bottom line. Uh, and if you are an organization trying to succeed and optimize in this economy that we don't understand, it is to your benefit to have a diverse workforce. And, and I think um, you know we can kind of know that intellectually, but struggle to make it real. But Beyond that, the protests lately ha- have really put it at the forefront of everybody, uh, and people are being quite conscious about where they're spending their money. They want to put their money behind organizations that are doing the right thing, and conversely, not um, put it behind organizations who are not doing the right thing. And you see it trickle up to um, CEOs. Boards are far more willing now to let CEOs go um, if they're are problems that emerge. It's not worth a headache to them to keep them. It's it's a nice symbolic gesture to cut the the executives um, when when there's trouble. And trouble is far more likely to go public and viral. I mean, organizations can be brought down within a, a couple of days if there's a big juicy story that gets on social media. So um, it's absolutely critical. It feels like, oh my God, you know, I, I can't possibly focus on this now. There's too many other things, but you can't afford not to right now. The, the urgency is absolutely palpable. And so what we've been seeing is an absolutely renewed focus, a lot more um, job postings for chief diversity officers. We're seeing public statements about what people are, are committing to do. But then behind all that is what are you actually doing? Because in the same period of time, we're seeing, for example, black workers are being called back to work at a much, much lower rate than their white colleagues, which tells says to me anyway that we intentionally trying to add diversity to our workforces we can do it, but when we have an out, we take it. 
Uh, and when that out is calling people back to work and you don't have to follow some of the same protocols that are in place when you're hiring, um, people seem to fall back into their old habits of, of hiring um, like for like. So um, so how to do this, how to go about it. Um, back to what I said before, I think when we're trying to do more with less, we have to be really intentional. We have to understand what we're doing. We can't just throw a whole bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. We actually have to take a step back, do some investigation, figure out where we can have the most impact with the resources that we have. Uh, it's going to lead to a much higher chance of success because you actually understand the problem and you've created a solution that fits it uh, and it will make the most of the resources that you have available to you. And I think diversity and inclusion is one of those places where we have taken a very broad approach to it. Uh, you know, education for everybody, uh, hiring quotas or these kinds of processes without actually looking into what's happening and why. I, you know, maybe your problem isn't in... Um, who you're hiring, it's the fact that actually some diverse candidates aren't even making it through the pipeline because um, at some point along the way, they're made to feel unwelcome and they drop out. Or maybe uh, people make it into the organization, but they're not advancing at the same rate because there's a clique mentality later on, and, and that's what's necessary to get promotion. So understanding where your problems are really will help you take a targeted action to to change it and and that's exactly what you need to do when you're trying to do more with less yeah and as you were talking there it made me think back to your top talent is always in demand your top diverse talent is always in demand too and there's a lot of organizations that are probably just like the one you work for also trying to make some headway on this issue and so if they come across somebody who's uh you know a a racial or ethnic minority or something like that who's uh, got great credentials, great performance, but is just not really happy at your organization, they're going to be that much easier and more eager to scoop up. Oh, very much so. I, I, I think that's true. And the other factor too, you know, we're talking about top talent. If you are, say, not doing heavy recruiting at historically black colleges, for example, who are you missing? Um, you know, there's wonderful talent out there. Or if you're not, if you are you know a snob about the colleges people went to who are you missing um you're you're going to be leaving out a bunch of great people um so so Vizier is a people analytics solution and so we have a lot of uh, pre-built analyses one of our analyses uh is for talent acquisition and it shows people progressing through the hiring funnel and kind of uh we call it the spaghetti chart because it looks like a bunch of strings of spaghetti um but it allows you to sort of see where people are dropping out of the process so where are you losing people and um and it's actually really informative because I think, you know, if, if you're trying to hire diverse talent and let's say you have a, a racist receptionist, somebody maybe not overt, but they're making people feel candidates of color feel uncomfortable at the door. That could be the only place where you're losing really great candidates. What a simple fix. Like that doesn't require training across the organization. It requires training for one person or maybe the replacement of one person. And, and you can have a big, big change. Like it could be that simple. I mean, I know institutionalized racism is, is, more than that, but but when you're looking at the changes, one person can cast a pall over an organization. And so understanding that uh, those forces can really help you um, change that culture. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, everybody can kind of visualize that person who can either become a, a you know, a bottleneck for, you know, at the at the front of an organization or, you know, they're like the the, the host or hostess at a uh, at a fine restaurant even though that person's maybe not the most highly trained uh, person in the restaurant with the most years of experience or even the highest paid, they are 
the first thing that everybody sees when they come into the restaurant and the first person that they interact with. So that person does need to be um, putting forth the, uh, the, the vibe and the, um, the experience that you want somebody to have all the way through your restaurant. And same thing with, uh, with the hiring funnel. Um, you can't have, uh, you can't have somebody making high quality candidates drop out at the very beginning. So um, zooming up a little bit uh, to, you know, we talked about this in particular to talent acquisition, but um, a lot of the time uh, data and analytics as an approach doesn't always feel in sync with the conversations we're all having about DNI. Um, why is it important to have numbers uh, and analytics uh, at the forefront or at least in- integral in those discussions? Yeah, I, I think what uh, what you notice with um, you know people who who study diversity and inclusion, who study the forces behind it, um, they're you know they're brilliant people. They're really insightful. They have really good ideas about how people are and why they behave the way they do. But um, what needs to happen, as I said, is, is some of the localization of the intervention. So as I mentioned earlier, where well, for one thing, training actually has, has mixed results. Some people are actually made quite defensive by training, and it actually uh, causes them to entrench in some of their their preconceived notions, but but if you're starting training across the organization, um, you're missing out on the opportunity to actually so do thoughtful interventions, and and the fact is you know we've been talking about diversity and inclusion and making changes for for 20 years if not more, and we're not getting anywhere. Um, some recent studies show that there's uh, the difference between the top quartile and the bottom quartile. Uh, is enormous, and in fact, the the top quartile is is of organizations, sorry, who who are, are pushing for diversity is is vastly outstripping the other seventy five percent who are actually slipping and falling behind. So whatever we're doing is not working, and I uh, I think that it's not working because it is not going to the right place. Uh, the the um, efforts are not going to the right place. So where analytics comes in is it's the opportunity uh, first of all to set a baseline. Where are we? What are our numbers right now? How do they reflect the communities around them? Uh, for example, I work in a company that's that's headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, um, and we'd actually there's not a very large Black population in Vancouver, Canada. There's a new, uh, quite a large Asian population, so you would expect walking into our office to see uh, to see that kind of reflection if we are truly a diverse organization. So it doesn't make sense for us actually to set large targets uh, for populations that are not in the region. So it's good to know that. Um, and it's also good to know where we're, we're falling behind in, in our representation because it tells us what what we can do. And it helps us come up with realistic targets. Um, we uh, recently actually brought on board a, a new customer who has publicly um, stated some really, really bold diversity targets. And, uh, you know, we're going to do everything we can to help them get there. But um you know, we, we think like, gosh, you know, I kind of I kind of wish they'd looked at their data first before they did this, um, because if you make a publicly, if you state your intention publicly, um, you also want to be able to state your success publicly. And so um, we're really think that it's important to understand where you are so you can understand realistically where you can be and how quickly you can get there. Uh, so those are just very practical uh, examples of where analytics and getting a, a good read on your organization helps. But if we want to get more into the, the weeds with it, what analytics does, as like I said, is it helps you identify the hotspots and where your problems are. Because yes, there's there can be some systemic problems. You know, how do we word our job postings? Where do we do our recruiting? Um, 
what are our family leave policies, all these things that might um, impact um, at a very broad level, how, how women are, are um, likely to stay and so on. Um, but again, as we talked about, sometimes it's a matter of people. Sometimes it's a matter of process that's localized within a particular kind of job or site that's causing problems. And if you're just looking at the high level numbers, you're not going to see that. So you need to be able to kind of cut through it, look at it a few different ways to start to uncover where your problems are. So if you have a case of, say, managers that uh, just don't feel, say, that, that women are cut out for management for whatever reason, it's probably not every single manager you have. It's probably maybe 10%. So it's far better to identify where it is that women are not advancing uh, and try to figure out who, who's causing that problem and target it than it is to just say, well, we don't have enough women in management. Let's run another training session. Uh, or let's try to hire more outside rather than developing the people we have, because maybe they're just not good enough. Uh, so you actually start to see the patterns um, behind the problems. And, and then you can start to come up with solutions that are really targeted um, to work for the problem that you have, rather than the problem that you think maybe possibly you have. Yeah, no, I think that's the point on localization and getting specific, you know, because it's it's one thing to look at, I don't know, a big country like America and say, and look at the big trends. And, you know, that's an important discussion to have, but it's not really nearly as applicable usually to take that macro trend and then say, okay, let's talk about how this applies to your small regional grocery chain in the upper Midwest. Like it's a lot harder to set targets based on America rather than the upper Midwest, plus what the organization has to begin with, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and what we do have a lot of our customers saying, you know, we want to look like where we are. We want to look like the neighborhood around us. So that that's their target. And I think that's a much, if it makes far more sense, um, but it does you know, require that not just that you look at your numbers at an organization level, but that you're able to look at your numbers by, by locations, by, by the kind of job, and then align it with what's around you. Um, but then also like I said, slicing and dicing and looking at, at the movement. Salary is another big one. I don't know how you can address, start to address uh, pay inequity without having good access to the data because it's not just necessarily about salary and bands by jobs, although that's, that's a significant effort in and of itself because you need to do a whole job standardization underpinning and then you know look at the baseline salaries. But where uh, you know, a recent... Um, job action at Google, there's actually a class action lawsuit, or, or I think they're waiting for approval for a class action lawsuit at Google, was it wasn't the base pay that was inequitable. What it was, was things like um, stock options and discretionary pay and bonuses. Uh, so you need to be able to, to have access to that kind of information to start to see if there are patterns of inequity there. Uh, and you just can't do that if you don't have uh, access to the data in, in a way that you can visualize it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, data and analytics provides visibility so that you can just have an intelligent conversation about what's actually going on. Um, yeah. So I'd like to play a game, I guess, or, a, or do a little role playing. Uh, pretend I'm a DNI lead. And, you know, I'm convinced that I need people analytics to support the work that I want to do in my organization. Uh, but I don't have the budget to get it all myself. Uh, you know, so how do I get other people on board to also start asking for uh, this solution or this kind of solution? 
Well, the the very lucky card that the DNI lead holds is that all the data and information the DNI lead needs to do their work to understand the problems that they have been tasked with uh, dealing with is the same data that will benefit uh, all of HR as they try to do more with less, as they try to understand uh, where they should be focusing their efforts, where you know where the skills are in the organization. So there's actually um, it's beautiful synergy. It's not just something for the DNI lead. If you have uh, at least a, a solution like Vizier, where the uh, questions are all pre-built, so what lights them up is the data, and the data that both groups need is pretty closely aligned. So what uh, will benefit the DNI lead will benefit your, you know, your talent VP, your um, total rewards VP, uh, anybody who's who's doing that kind of work. People are looking to manage, you know, get a sense of where the skills are in the organizations, uh, and just form really great decisions about your talent to make sure that everybody's able to be as productive as possible. So, if you are a DNI lead and you don't know that you have the the economic juice to get this for yourself. Uh, Bring in your colleagues and your friends, and we are happy to, to show everybody what, what you can get out of it. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a great point that um, a lot of the data that, uh, that a DNI lead is going to be using, they might be using in different ways or using to answer different questions, but it's very similar to um, the kind of stuff that HR leaders would want to focus on as well. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I can give you a really good example. Uh, you know, when I was talking about slicing and dicing and, and getting down to the details of where some problems are, that's going to be the, the case whether somebody's, you know, it's a DNI problem at the root of it or not. Um, you know, we had a customer uh, who was unhappy with their turnover numbers. So they started to, to dig into the detail to figure out where it was. And what they discovered was that the turnover, it wasn't a universal problem, it was localized to select job codes in select locations. And it was manager problem at those locations for those kinds of jobs. So they were able to do some targeted training for the managers and they made some other changes to the uh, career trajectory for those job plans. And and they turned it right around. And in fact, because this was a revenue generating role, not only did they save money in terms of turnover costs, they actually saved money in terms of revenue because um, you you don't just lose uh, the potential of that person to earn as they get more experience. You also just learn time as they're out of the job and so on. So it was it was actually a massive change saving. But that's exactly the same kind of investigation that a DNI person needs to be doing if there's a problem. You know, why aren't women progressing in this part of the company, um, but they're doing okay elsewhere? It's exactly the same kind of investigation. It's just slightly different uh, filters and parameters to to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a really compelling uh, illustration there. So as we come to the end here, I just want to zoom out a little bit further and get your perspective on, you know, HR, especially historically, not known as the place where numbers go to dance and uh, and party, but marketing and finance are. Uh, but uh, so like, how do you see HR ever getting to that place where you know, 20 years from now, people are going to be saying, so, well, if you need data analytics, dude, grab somebody from HR. They got a, a great team. Huh. Over there. Yes. So I'm going to give you a cautionary tale. It's uh, certainly people analytics is growing. The interest in it is absolutely growing and establishing the importance of it. I mean, you know, we have analytics and finance because finance wants to accurately track what's going on with you know, assets and things like that. But we don't do the same for our people. There are organizations that know more about a dump truck than they know about a person. 
So, you know, we haven't been treating people and people data with that same kind of acknowledgement of their import on the business and their value to the business as we do um, other assets. And we're starting to recognize that, that, that we should. But what is happening simultaneously is as you know, people, uh, people in HR, listed, it, it's people don't generally go into HR because they're comfortable with numbers and analytics. Um, and we do see, in fact, see a lot of people analytics team built from people who have uh, finance analytics experience or other kind of analytics experience. And they're, and they're trying to get up to speed on HR um, so that they can provide that kind of value in HR. What we are also starting to see, though, as the value of people analytics is being recognized, is we are actually starting to see some places siphon off that skill set and pull it into either operations or finance, pull it away from HR. Um, so this is a real danger zone to me. Um, it's it, to me, it's, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's taking um, because sure, the numbers around people are super, super important, but what you do about it, the interventions, the actions that you take, that requires a skill set of HR. Like it, it is, it is far, we're going to have far more impact bringing an HR person up to speed on analytics than you are bringing an analytics person up to speed on HR, in my opinion. I think you are going to find far more value in the organization. Um, and it's completely doable. Analytics is not if you have a solution that you can use, analytics is not mysterious. You can learn how to use it. The other danger point here, and this is going to sort of dovetail with some of the DNI stuff, is that HR is still one of the places where you know a woman can reach the C-suite. You're, you see, don't see a whole lot of female CFOs. You see a lot of a lot more female uh, CHROs. And actually, the skill set of a CHRO is also optimal for a CEO position. Uh, and HR is a place where a lot of women can succeed and advance. A lot of women of color do very well in HR as, as well. And if we siphon off this high value activity to another organization and kind of keep HR mired in, in a process driven, reactive kind of role, then um, we're really losing an amazing, amazing opportunity uh, to continue to add value to the, the careers uh, of women and women of color. And I think that's really dangerous. It's going to lead to sort of a masculinization um, of the high value parts and a feminization. It's like, you know, pink collar, blue collar thing. So maybe, you know, I sound kind of radical there, but I do think it's a real danger. And I think that um, if, if you are a CHRO who really is passionate about the careers of your own people, then I think investing in analytics and, the, and investing in your team to become skilled in analytics is a great thing to do for, for your people. And, and the value to your organization, of course, is it goes without saying, but I think it's even more than that. Thanks so much, Caitlin, for such a stimulating conversation. Uh, really enjoyed it on my end and uh, was really glad to get the benefit of your expertise today. And thanks, of course, to the folks over at Vizier. Check them out at vizier.com for all they have on tap to offer you. And for all ideas related to HR, come visit the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. Don't forget to like us, rate us, and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Smart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Mellish.